I've been uh, I've been bouncing back and forth a lot between cameras where I'm looking at the image coming through the lens on ground glass, and that includes you know SLRs and large format cameras and twin lens reflex, everything like where you're you're seeing through a lens uh, on ground glass. And then I alternate that with using uh, rangefinder cameras where you're just looking through a hole in the camera and focusing indirectly by using a rangefinder. And I find this, I find myself a lot happier with that second choice a lot of the time where I have less information, but I'm pretty comfortable that the focus will be precise. And I know that you have a preference for rangefinder cameras too, and I'm wondering if you can explain it in your, you know, why that is. Sure. There, okay. So there are certain situations in which looking through the lens is pretty crucial. Uh, and there are certain situations where looking through the lens is detrimental. And, Mm -hmm. uh, where I really see it is, uh, okay. So I just bought an 18 millimeter, it's a Sigma 18 millimeter 3.5, uh, F 3.5 lens or 3.2 or something like that lens for Minolta MD. And it was really cheap. It was, uh, less than a hundred bucks on eBay. And, uh, I have been putting that, uh, mating that with, uh, Minolta SLR and going around and really looking at the world through that lens. To me, when you are in a situation like that, I think it is crucial to be able to see that. And what I how, how what was what was the focal length? Of it's that? eighteen millimeter. Um, you know, so it's a, really wide. It's extremely wide, and it's and it's not quite you know it's not what what I would really consider a fisheye. It doesn't really fisheye. Uh, I mean, it certainly distorts, but it doesn't. You know, it's not. It's so not this, a bubble. Is this, so is your concern with composition because it's super easy to focus such a wide lens? Yeah, right, exactly. And that's and that's part of the deal. It's composition and it is really tracking the effect of that super wide lens. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and and Oh, so you can be aware of the weird perspective effect. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Now there are, you know, um Cosina Voigtlander came out with this super wide Heliar, which is a 15 millimeter lens and it came with a uh an accessory viewfinder that you would you know put on the accessory shoe and i think that that would do just as well and i think i would be happy with that but uh you know as as an alternative um in other I, words, using it on a rangefinder. Using it on a rangefinder, exactly. Right. Okay, so, uh, but let's talk about just like a normal lens. Anything 28 to 105, let's say that. Um, you know, mm-hmm. any sort of middle range lens. I prefer to see what the viewfinder, uh, I'm sorry, I, I prefer not to see what the lens sees because what the lens sees is false. You don't see the depth of field. You, uh, and, uh, you don't see the way. So right. With an, with an automatic lens, you're always seeing that this yeah, shallow depth field, which is, right. which isn't necessarily relevant. Right. right. And, you know, uh, and you can always do depth of field preview and, and a lot of people do. 
Uh, and I've had cameras that have stopped down metering. So you have to do depth of field for, for the metering. Uh, so it's I'm, still pretty hard. It's still pretty hard to make it out though. Right. It's, right. Yeah. So, so that's half of it. The other half of it is I am better looking at a scene and using my brain to judge how the film will interpret that scene than I am looking through the lens and making that same decision. And I, I think that that has to do with, uh, practice. Now, I will also jump back for a, a very simple technical reason is in the past, my eyes were horrible. Uh, I've since had, what do you call it? Laser, uh, yeah, LASIK. LASIK. LASIK mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, and I can see very well. Uh, I, I have very sharp vision. I have about 2015 vision, um, uh, for, for distance, but, um, when I am looking through a, uh, when I'm looking through an SLR lens, I have much more difficulty, even with a split screen, you know, the, the, the split focusing aid in the center. Um, I am much better off doing the exact, you know, the relatively same thing with the rangefinder patch. Um, well, because it's, and I don't think it's even a visual acuity. I think yeah. there's something that happens where, the rangefinder patch, it's either aligned or it isn't. But when you're looking at something that's blurry, it becomes a little bit subjective and makes you, it makes you struggle a little if you're, if you're not a person who's like, I don't know, if you have any doubt about things, you'll, you'll waffle. And there's this right. period of waffling that wastes time and energy, right? I, I agree fully. I agree fully. It's that, it's that, um, you know, zoom, you know, we see it with autofocus lenses, right? That, that searching for focus is what we call it, where it goes, you know, it does that. Yeah. Well, my brain does that every time. Right. right. And we, and we do that with our fingers, right. You know, uh, through the SLR lens. Um, I, I, there, there is once again, and I've said it before, I like figuring out with my brain what this picture is going to look like with my brain and then taking it and then, moving on as opposed to having a, too much of a preview. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it even goes down to, uh, if I'm using a camera that does not have a viewfinder, I'm a little bit happier because I don't have to look through. Uh, I once again have to use my brains, my brain to figure out, okay, this is, this is where the lens is. This is where uh, the, you know, the film is. So that's the angle. So this is going to be in it. I even like doing that a little bit more. Now, I have to remove the viewfinder from the camera in order to do that. Otherwise, I'm going to look through that viewfinder. Uh, but I do enjoy that other process without the viewfinder a little bit more. So I think what you're saying is summed up as TMI is distracting. Too much yes. information is distracting from the subject, which right. is what we should be paying attention to, right? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, that's definitely part, a big part of it. Um, I think you're right. I think there's that there's a kind of muddiness that happens when you have too much input, and it's very often irrelevant. 
Because most of the time, if you're stopped down a little, it doesn't really matter exactly yes. where you focused. And so you're wasting time and energy on something that isn't even of consequence. So I guess what you're saying is that unless you're shooting an oddball lens wide open, uh, then all of that information is a distraction. Let's, uh, let's even go this far. Okay. Um, the, uh, Camerodactyl OG is mm -hmm. a camera that has a ground glass focusing mechanism, right? It's one of the two options, yeah. Well, it's it's the main option because it well, ships with that and it ships with a viewfinder, but it doesn't ship with a focusing... You can scale focus, though. You can scale focus after you've gone through the process of setting up the scale focus using the ground exactly. glass. Exactly, right, right. right. So once, uh, you know, if I try to use that ground glass... I am going to be, I'm going to be, uh, completely, uh, distracted by what's in that viewfinder and the things, and I'm going to be distracted away from what I really want to focus on. So sure, if you're the, really, if you're really using the ground glass as it's meant to be used, you're like on a tripod, you're underneath a hood, you've got a loop out, like, yeah, it's a time consuming right. thing. And that's fine if your subject is completely stationary. But if anything's going on, you know, that's a big, a big detriment. Or, yeah. or even if you, um, it, the time that you take making a full view camera photograph is a lot of time. And yep. there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a little bit more time than I'm going to do it. Um, well, it sort of depends on what you're, what you're shooting. Like if you're shooting stagnant, landscape then it's not a big deal but if if anything's happening if there's anything you need to capture like even just light changing rapidly it starts to become difficult i you know i follow you um to a certain extent with that um but i'm even going to say that my brain will have checked out by the time uh, i'm ready to take that picture and it's past its um uh, pleasurable experience time i don't think oh, i don't okay. think that i am ready to do and now uh, there are a couple of other examples but but i don't think i'm ready for view cameras um i don't think i'm ready to do all of the motions all of the movements um you know line everything up uh yeah I, but that's with a camera dactyl, none of that matters. Right. You, it's just, you're really only resolving focusing and it, composition. It's a 4 by 5 hand camera that I'm going to use as a hand camera. Yeah, so you're going to use it with the viewfinder and scale focus. Right, right, and exactly. And that solves that's your problem. I've yet. got an F8 lens on it. I'm, uh, you know, I'm never going to shoot it at F8. Uh, so it doesn't, it, I mean, I can, I much rather use it as much more of a point and shoot than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and that's what's great about that camera is that it's it's really ideal for that use. Right, right, exactly. So, uh, so yeah, that's um, I prefer the brain interaction of pre-visualizing the scene and then making the decision based on that. Yeah, that's something that's been on my mind a lot because it's. Uh... I'm finding it's such a different experience one way or the other. And I now have cameras that do both. Yeah. The, the, the Mamiya press does exactly both. It does, uh, it does one thirty. you know, it does 
pure rangefinder where you just focus and then look through a, a separate composing viewfinder unless you happen mm-hmm. to be using the lens that matches the regular viewfinder and then um and i like that actually that you have two separate peepholes you do you look through one to focus and you look through the other to compose and it like separates the tasks and i really actually like right that. right <laughs> but you can also use it with a ground glass if you need to and this camera is similar uh if you use it with a with a uh an add-on rangefinder you pretty much are doing the exact same thing mm-hmm. just yeah when it, you know little little slight delay but and i don't know i just i feel good when i'm working that way and i peering through peering at ground glass using slrs there's definitely a place for that there's certain kinds of pictures where that's the the best alternative but yeah i don't know if i even i don't know i even don't even know if those are the images i care most about like right (laughs) it's there's this whole other thing of like, well, okay, so if I'm taking a picture of something that's so static that I can fool around forever, is even a subject I'm that interested in, you know? <laughs> this is a right. question I'm asking a lot because I do that, you know. That's part of the deal. Um, when I, uh, okay, so uh, I've been asked in interviews a bunch of times, um, what was your favorite graphic design project? My answer, which is truthful, but it's kind of smart ass, is um, the next one. Right. Because by the time, it, for a couple of things, you know, one of them is it's the uh, it's the pinball reward. And pinball reward is uh, if you play a good game, you get another game. So if you do a good job with your project, you get to do another job, right? And well, that's exactly what my whole career is. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and that's the yeah. best way. That really is the best way, you know. Um, yeah, but um, when the when the cycle is an entire year, yeah. the end of the year can be a bit of a drag. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, and then finding the next one is uh, is the other. right. Those those two. Those two parts are the catch. That's where you, you know, pay for the joy of the rest of it. Yeah. So what part of the deal is by the time I am done with a graphic design job, if I have done it properly, which I, I think I tend to do, um, I am so sick of it because (laughs) I have looked at all of the possibilities. Right. And it is just visual mush to me. Right. Um, and I don't know at the end whether it's good or bad. Um, but I, but I trust in the process, right? I trust. Right, in the right. Process. So exactly. I don't know whether it's good or bad. And I feel like I'm going to get to the same point, um, with a view, you know, with an eight by 10 camera. And I don't want to get to that point because that's work. You know what I mean? That's, that's, um, I, I want to get, I want to be on the next exciting thing. Okay, but know? I think we can, we can design an eight by ten camera that will that will not do that to you. Okay. I mean, that's just a matter of designing the camera that it will not have those options that are going to bog you down. Okay. <laughs> so, what do you say we start the homemade camera podcast? I've 
been thinking a lot about the idea of creating my own negatives, creating my own film, creating my own recording medium that I can then use to, uh, to, to shoot photos with. And so, uh, part of the deal is I have another podcast. I'm doing a podcast, you know, essentially for beginners. It's called Get Started with Film Photography. And I just finished a five episode series. And that means it was about three hours worth of, worth of talk, but a five episode series on film. And, you know, I mean, if you don't know what film is, you know, you might as well, uh, you know, it, it, you, if, if you don't know that you can't change the ISO on film, like you can change the ISO on your digital camera, you're going to be lost with film photography. So that was the reason why I did those episodes. But part of the, the doing of the episode was I had to do some research because I could use my brain and what I remember, but that doesn't mean it's going to be correct. And I wanted it to be correct. I did not want to steer anybody wrong. So I started thinking, uh, you know, I, I, I went through and, and did some research on what film is exactly. And then I, uh, started to think about how I could do that myself and shoot film that I made myself. Now, I know it can be done, and I know there are people out there doing it, and there are several kits and several uh, advantageous pieces. Uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, you don't have to do everything from scratch. There are you can, some... You can buy goop in a bottle and right. pour it onto paper. Right, right, right <clears throat> that type of thing. So, so let's let's. I'm going to talk a little bit about what a film negative is and what we can do and and uh, and a couple of principles of the of the film uh, of the properties of film, so that we can uh, we can have a conversation about it, and it's not going to be ISO negative fifty, you know, where you have to use a blowtorch right next to it to get light on it and, and have it react. So, so yeah, that's okay. tough for portraits. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Uh, okay. Um, what gelatin silver negative is, um, you know, you, you, uh, film, black and white film, color film, slide film, all the film that we use is uses silver and it's, uh, light reactive properties. So, um, what, what the, and this is something that was hit pretty early on, um, is the idea that silver, when it is combined with one of three halides, um, it creates silver halide. And silver halide, when it is silver, when it's combined with these halides becomes light sensitive. So, um, the three halides that there are five total halides, but there are only three that really work for photography. Um, silver iodide, silver chloride, and silver bromide. Those are the three halides. So they're, the halides are uh, a set of five elements on the periodic table. And the of those five, those three work well for photography. And what happens is you mix the silver 
and whichever one of the halides that you use. And you mix them together in certain conditions and you raise the temperature of that mixture and they start to form crystals, salts. Okay. So salt is a crystal, uh, you know, the, the salt, the, the table salt that we have, which is sodium chloride. Um, that is a salt. A salt is that crystal form formation. Now we call salt. You know, that silver halide, or this, excuse me, <laughs> we call salt that sodium, sodium chloride. chloride. Yeah. yeah. Um, but salt is that classification of those crystals. So those two. And those are, and those are very geometrically precise, uh, uh, organizations of atoms. Right. Right. Exactly. So when they're combined, they, they start to form those crystals. The longer you can keep them growing, the larger they'll be, the higher the light sensitivity will be, but the larger the grain. So that's our connection between fine grain, oh, slow right. film, and, right. and fat grain, big grain, rough grain, um, visible grain, fast films. So, so it's basically a cooking process. It, it's a cooking process, and and the the cooking process creates these these silver uh, crystals, these um, uh, silver halide crystals. So um, the you, you have those silver halide crystals, and then they need to be attached to the substrate. So the substrate is acetate or polyester. Those are the two major um, uh, substrates that we have. That's the film in film, the plastic flexible film. That's that's the film in film. And in order to bind the silver to that plastic, it is put into gelatin. And uh, gelatin is an animal product. It's usually the hooves or the skins of animals um as part of the the processing the rendering uh, of the animal um uh so that combination of the silver and the halide suspended in gelatin is what is light sensitive so it's pretty uh, macabre really it is. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it makes it very difficult to be a vegan and a photographer at the same time. Um, but it is, um, we, we heard, uh, the sunny 16, I would say somewhere around episode 90 or 80. Um, Graham and Rachel went to the Ilford processing plant. And one of the things that they, talked about was that the animal gelatin works much better than any sort of artificial gelatin. And, you know, there are artificial gelatins made from seaweed and all, uh, and artificial, uh, uh, plant-based, let's say. And, and you also have other, you have other options if you don't have a flexible substrate. So film is more demanding than say a sheet of glass or. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, so so that binder, the, the gelatin is the binder. Now there are other types of binders that have been used historically. Um, uh, the, the one that we, uh, 
you know, albumin, uh, which is uh, egg whites, another mm, animal product, <laughs> you know. Um, so, uh, you know, that, those certainly work. Um, anyway, that, that's, that's the idea of film. And, you know, it's that, that's the idea of what film is and that's the structure of film. So I think that there's a reasonable expectation that that is something that we could do. Um, and that is something that, you know, it, we, we talked about in, in last week, the, the fear of what was going to go away. And I, I talked about, uh, color chemistry. Yeah. And film. And, and That's film. what I talked about. Yeah, right. Right. Well, I, I think that maybe we sh- we will be able to always produce film. Yeah. I think absolutely. Because it, there are these very much home cookbook ways to create. Uh, light sensitive media and some of them are really beautiful so maybe we'll lose if we lose the variety of um, modern films that are available now we but there there's sort of a compensation which some of these older more primitive processes are actually very beautiful and right. very effective so it's not yeah we don't have to worry about not being able to take photos it's just the convenience may uh, convenience and i I think fidelity is something that will be difficult to maintain. Um, and, and once again, color will be, uh, certainly more, uh, more difficult. Um, you know, there more are time consuming, yeah. more time consuming. Yeah. Um, yeah. and it, so, so we'll have to, um, you know, we would have to do that. So, you know, um, uh, I looked up on, uh, Amazon, I can buy, uh, photo grade gelatin, um, right on Amazon. So, uh, it's that, and you can buy silver and you can buy all of the halides and you can, you can cook them yourself. So, um, so this is something that you can, you can reasonably do yourself. Now, whether you, you want to do them from scratch. Yeah. Starting from scratch. Now, whether wow. you want to do them in your kitchen or, <laughs> Or somewhere out in the open, I don't know. Um, uh, and I don't know what the light conditions are for the cooking stage. So, uh, so that's something for me to continue to explore. Now I'm going to give a credit here for some of this information. And, you know, some of it's off of Wikipedia and a, and a variety of, of web pages, but I found a PDF that I thought was absolutely wonderful. And it's from TimLaytonFineArt.com. So it's T-I-M-L-A-Y-T-O-N FineArt.com. And then it's a PDF and there are hyphens in between these words. Making Simple Silver Gelatin Emulsion Osterman.pdf. So, uh, I will, uh, also, you know, we'll have that in the, uh, in the show notes as well. But this is, um, uh, there's, it's a whole PDF that talks about making your own film. So it's something that, that I think that, you know, we can do. And, uh, in addition to that, I'm going to talk about, uh, the coating. Now, I've seen homemade coating machines. And I've seen photographs of them. They're, they're certainly, um, contraptions, 
but there are also certainly things that I think that we can make. And it's not the it's not the only way to go about it. You can do right. other methods of coding uh, single plates and that kind of thing. Right, you're right, exactly. And uh, but I would, you know, I'm kind of thinking about the whole idea of a hundred feet as being a reasonable goal. So you right, make that's, a batch. That's the way you that's the way you roll, so to speak. But, uh, <laughs> yes, I'm more attracted to. Uh, I'm actually more attracted to plate. At this point, I'm really interested in glass plates. So yes. we, yeah. if we both pursue those two things, we'll have uh, two well, this is, different kind of angles on the same goal. Yeah, this is my summer. Uh, I, my um, As we record this um, right at the end of April, uh, I have graduation on May 3rd. And then I and I teach a summer class starting at the end of June. So I have about, um, well, I have four weeks because... Then I'm going on a little bit of a trip at the end of that. But um, I have uh, four weeks in which to play with this. So uh, cool. I, I'm 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 going to keep keep uh, your eyes peeled to my Instagram. And I'm, I'm looking forward to getting a roll of homemade film in the mail. Yeah, well, it's, what do you give me? <laughs> what do you trade me for? <laughs> Oh, what do you need? What do you need? I need I I think I need some some garden art and that one that you just did for... <laughs> No Garden maybe... Art I Garden Art, sure. No, no I'm problem. thinking yeah, but bigger than my garden. I'm thinking I need Bigger some than your garden. garden. I don't know. Well, all right. Yeah. So however many thousands of feet of film you're Oh, send yeah, it, okay. I won't be a problem. Yeah. I get you. We could do a commensurate trade. So <laughs> So Let's go with it, square square footage. Yeah, there we go. There we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> or wait. Um, okay, so uh, that's the idea. That's, uh, you know, what I just talked about there is making your own film that would be comparable to, you know, very slow black and white film. And, um, and uh, you know, proper ISO. You know, part of the one, what I want to do with a hundred feet is be able to test it to make sure that, that I know what shooting speed it is before, you know, I get done. Uh, right. You know, you uh, need a, right. Mystery film, done. you need a pretty long roll of it to, right. to find your way. Yeah, right. right. Now, or, or we could say, uh, you know, I, I spent a couple of years thinking that I could brew beer and what I found was I can brew beer. I can brew pretty good beer that I like about a, th- a third of the time. <laughs> you know which so you means, get two packs uh, oh, right. you, you get two packs no i need three packs and throw away two you know i mean or you know so well, if you're only getting it a third of the time you're gonna have oh i see a two pack rather than a six pack yeah. i get you i right. get you uh so so that's you know uh so i need to have a big enough batch so that i can know that batch um and you know i and i would have to to figure out how to get um, you know, how to get a hundred feet of blank film. Um, this is going to be one of these things yeah. where you're going to, when you finally perfect it, then you're going to want to figure out how to go back to the original wacky film that you first right. made. <laughs> right. Because that's going to be the coolest. Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> now, what, what did I do was, oh, man. <laughs> You need to take good notes. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, so no, anyway. it sounds really, really exciting, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, so that's what uh, my my summer project will be.
I was talking about in the last little bit there, I was talking about, you know, making it from scratch, working with um, photograde gelatin, growing the silver crystals myself. But there are some pre-made alternatives, and I kind of alluded to that also. Um, I did a little search of uh, both Freestyle and um, Amazon. And Freestyle Photo in the U.S. had a little bit bigger kit. And I know that there's a, a place in the U.K. Um, where uh, Neil Piper has talked about getting his cyanotype kits from. So, or his cyanotype chemistry from. You know, isn't, doesn't Andrew live right up, I think Andrew Bartram lives right up the road from a guy who sells uh, stuff for alternative processing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Out of a lockup garage. Yeah, I, I believe like you're just right. a few miles from his house, who's who's a, kind of a dealer in this kind of thing. So there there are people out there that supply ready made chemicals that you can basically make film or film like media just right. by by pouring some stuff out of a jar into a tray and then floating your your substrate, say a piece of paper or a piece of film or a piece of glass, so that it it gets coated with the stuff. Right, right, exactly. And so um, there are a couple of brands that sell um, uh, light uh, photo emulsion. Essentially, it's photo emulsion. And um, there's a company in the U.S. Uh, that, or that's available in the U.S., uh, although I think it's a British company, and that's Rockland, and they do liquid light photo emulsion. Um, now... Uh, and, uh, FOMA in Czechia, uh, I believe they do FOMA speed liquid emulsion. And then there are a couple of other ones that are, that are out there. Um, I believe that there's one that is Agfa branded. Um, and a lot of these photo emulsions, I think are designed for paper. Or other type of substrate. They're they're designed for um, for prints. They're designed for the print end as opposed to the negative end. Although you can still put them into it's all a the negative same holder, stuff. right? Yeah, but but you're right. It's it's not the it's not a transparent medium uh, that's like designed to run through a normal roll film camera. Uh, but you can you can still do a lot with it and probably even figure out how to roll it in some cases right exactly and uh and there are and, and that's and that's actually one of the things that i really want to do um also in that research that i came up or the research that i did for my other podcast um i i was looking at early formats of film and there was a format, and I don't remember, it's in it's in the low 100s, you know, like 109 um, film, that was a 4x5 roll film. And mm. yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? And I'm, you know, and I'm thinking that really would not be that difficult to do. We just, you know, you could do it with cut up uh, transparencies, you know, cut up. Um, uh, you know, overhead transparencies. I think that that would work, uh, perfectly well, um, for something like that. And, 
uh, and but and and so you have a, a four by five roll film back. Now, is that going to be better than uh, sheet film? Is it going to be faster? Is it going to be easier? You, you know, I think the individual has to decide. Yeah, that. there's some there's some argument to be said for having separate sheets because if it's all experimental, then you only you only screw up one image at a time. You know, you can kind of right. find your way with a little more precision. Whereas if you develop a whole roll and you're you're off, then you've you know you've blown a larger number of images. So, yeah, there's. I think when you get to the bigger formats, the the argument to to stick to separate sheets gets stronger and stronger. Right, right, and, exactly. And it's also easier because the you know the sheet film holders are out there, and you know you don't have to yeah. do as much uh, yeah. as much construction. But and yeah. you don't have to shoot the whole roll before you develop it. That's part of the other thing, right? Right. So, so I'm really attracted to very large formats like eight by ten, and yeah. the film costs a fortune, and then processing it and everything else. That really puts me off. But as soon as you look at the alternative process, it sort of switches the tables because, well, if I'm going to make an 8x10 and, and the film is really expensive, well, now it's starting to be effect cost-effective to make my own negative and process it myself because uh, I've got control of the whole thing and I'm bringing the, the initial cost down and you know it starts to make more sense. So I, for me... The alternative processes make more and more sense as you get into bigger and bigger sizes. Right. Right. Exactly. So there are also, uh, this is something that I think is a little bit different with, with being at this stage of technological evolution and photography as opposed to, say, being in the 1980s. And that is the idea that we can scan or shoot digitally large negatives and simply invert them and process them that way for a digital printout, you know, and, uh, or, or, you know, go down that path or to create digital negatives that we would then contact print with another yeah. medium. Um, so, I don't, you know, part of part of what we used to have to do was get that transparent image, that transparent the 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 negative that you can see through the the you know right. that would allow light all the way through so that it could be printed. Well, we can print in so many different ways now. So sure enough, um, there's nothing wrong with an opaque negative if you can just scan it directly. Right. And it almost an advantage because you can use a really cheap scanner that way. Neil Piper on, it wasn't just, he's just released another episode, but, um, the, uh, his podcast, Soot and Whitewash is, mm -hmm. uh, he talked about his, his, uh, cyanotype printing. And one of the things that he does is he makes a digital negative. So he takes an image and he blows it up in, onto, uh, I guess a large piece of acetate, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, so an overhead transparency is what we called them. Forever. So you're making a digital print on acetate. Yeah. And then uses that with the cyanotype to make the print. Well, mm -hmm. here's something else that I thought, and this is something that's actually, and um, I was just listening to the Sunny 16 last night. Uh, when we recorded this, we've just gone through Worldwide Pinhole Day. And Graham was talking about using his, using some cyanotype paper in a pinhole camera. And I thought, 
Uh, well, I had worked another direction with that, and that was putting it in one of the lumen boxes that has a lens, okay? And then, so you're exposing cyanotype paper in a camera uh, of mm-hmm. sorts. Um, and, uh, you know, part of the deal is that it takes a very long time, but I don't know what the development time would be with cyanotype because part of the deal is that, um, it uses ultraviolet light and ultraviolet light doesn't really reflect a whole lot. Um, so there's, there's something to be really worked through on that. I, I think it's something that, that I can do a bit of exploring with. And make the cyanotype the recording medium, the primary recording medium. And then mm-hmm. I can invert it and I'd have a yellow print, right? You know, that's the invert. The inverse of uh, blue is a yellow or an orange. Or the... Sure. Or wait, isn't the inverse of cyan red? Doesn't that make a uh, color wheel... And cyan. Okay, so what is the, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm on the other side. I'm red. So that would make a red print. So you end up with something more sepia tone. Yeah. I think it would be red. I think anything that would be positive, um, so anything that would be black and a black and white would be red. So, uh, so anyway, that's, that's the idea. Um, and, you know, and all of these things can be done with larger cameras, um, th- th- but they're going to take longer exposure. So um, anything that can go in a 4x5 film holder uh, and a piece of paper can go in a 4x5 film holder, right? Um, you know, can be coated with, with, a, with a substance, whether it's liquid light or um, albumin on... A piece of paper or cyan on a, you know, cyanotype chemistry on a piece of paper, uh, salt prints on a piece of paper, gum bichromate, all of those things are possible. Sure. So in, instead of thinking of them as the printing medium, you're talking about making the negative or recording medium. Yeah, that's right. That's a really interesting idea. And with digital scanning, you know, there's not even much of a limit to that. Like, you know, you mentioned the color wheel going from blue to red, but if you're going to scan it, right. it could be anything you want it yes, to be. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's, um, and, and one of the other things that you can do with Photoshop is you can introduce, uh, I should probably do a, I, I could probably do a little quick video on this at some point, but you can use a, a value map, a grayscale map. They're, they call it something else. But you assign different colors to different points of gray, and so you can get a false image. Um, yeah, and there are and there are analog versions of all of this. Like you can do it digitally, and it's convenient. But gum bichromate is much older than computers. Like it's right. it's a process that can be done as a straight three color printing process as well. So for everything right. that you're describing, like the convenience of doing it digitally, it can also be done in a direct analog manner. Right, exactly. So, and, you know, and we could even do, you know, once again, take that cyanotype negative and do an internegative, you know, a digital negative and make a cyanotype positive on, on, on that. 
uh, or a salt print positive or or or, or you could do an analog print and then use that to, you know to make the next step and go i mean you could do all these things right. in old fashioned way as well as right. uh, a convenient digital way hell yeah. i can even put it on instagram yeah yeah <laughs> No, I think it, I think it, this is a, it's, it makes a lot of sense. And if you go all analog, you can just take a picture of it and post it that way. So you, there's right. never a limit. It's just it's going to look a little different. So that's part of the game is figuring out what it will look like. Yeah. So, you know, we are the homemade camera podcast, aren't we, Nick? Oh, that's the, yeah, that's the plan. So how does this affect building a camera? And that's, you know, uh, that's kind of the next step. Is... So there are, there are several things that, that I get really excited about. When, when you start talking about making your own media, your own film, so to speak, um, whether it's glass plates or some kind of roll film or just taking sheets of paper and making them light sensitive and sticking them in a holder. There's a couple things that are really exciting to me. One is that you're just free of the traditional format limitations. So if you're going to make your own film holder and your own film, you can make any shape you want, right? Yes. You don't have to, you know, like if you want a panorama, the old days they made these glass plate panorama cameras called banquet cameras that were designed to get like everyone in a school into one picture and they were these big long rectangles or everyone in your army unit and when you start looking at old prints made with these these old glass plates they're amazing this is another example of you know where improvements in technology aren't actually improvements so film is more convenient than glass but it's not better when you start looking at old glass plates, you you realize they were better. That was a better substrate. You know, film has got a lot of problems. It's bendy. It's got animal goo all over it. You know, it's it's not an ideal material. It's just a convenient material to you know to roll up and sell in a little cartridge. So there are some some real advantages to going back to older ways of doing things. And and paper negatives are wonderful too. There's something to be said for an opaque negative that you can scan in a cheap scanner that you know, that uh, uses an inexpensive material like paper as, as a basis. Um, there's all kinds of kind of freedom that comes from taking a little extra trouble to make your own media. And so that's exciting. And, and from the point of view of building cameras, uh, not being limited to the traditional formats is, is kind of cool. So, yeah, and uh, once again, you, you're not necessarily even limited to the shape although the shape does have a a bit of convenience to it but um as long as it fits in the image circle of your lens then you know it doesn't really matter right we each have at least one four by five camera um and we can make those dry plate holders for that four by five camera i think that um there there's not really a whole lot stopping us from doing that you know no the only only thing that matters is that the emulsion side sits in the same place so basically you just have to enlarge the groove that the substrate 
you know sits in right big enough to hold it and right. it, there's no enlarging needed if it's on paper but it, you know if you're going to use glass you need a little bit of a, a thicker slot for the the glass to slide into right and you have to figure out a way to get it in right ways round you don't want the emulsion on the wrong side when you slide it in and you know in your dark room or dark bag when you're loading it you need to know which side the emulsion's on sure and with with traditional film, there's notches that you put in the upper right or the lower left or whatever. But with glass, if you're making your own glass plates, you're going to have to figure out how to remember that and find it in the dark. And it might just be careful stacking or something. Right. But you need a system. And then the other thing is that there are old glass plate holders out there. There are quite a lot of them. And there are also the old pack film holders, which give you plenty of room to put uh, thicker things inside them. So there are plenty of ready-made uh, film holders in the world but what a film holder really is is just a frame with slots cut in it and one slot is for a dark slide that, that blocks out the light and another is for the film itself and then there's going to be some kind of a back on it or unless it's a two-sided one so it's a pretty simple structure to build it's not it's just a little carpentry not that hard right um or a little printer. now if you're getting into uh, esoteric roll films if you want to like make roll paper you know roll paper up and have a paper negative on a roll and take multiple shots well you'll have to get into a little more sophisticated construction to do it but it's not that complicated absolutely absolutely i'm uh totally with you on that and in fact the other uh, the other night as i was going to sleep i was thinking about how to make four by five uh roll film and use some backing paper for it so uh assume that i am putting the emulsion onto a paper and also assume that that paper is not necessarily light tight. I would need some mm -hmm. backing paper and I can 3d print a spool that's large enough. I'm not worried about that. But if you take two, two one twenty film, uh, backing papers and tape them together. Okay then mm -hmm. what you're, you know, what you would get is, um, you know, a, a, a two or sorry, a, um, what is it? It would be four and a half inches, right? Cause they're two and a quarter by two and a quarter. So there would mm -hmm. be four and a half inches. Um, so you're, you're along, you're where you need to be. Uh, the only problem with the only problem I foresee is if you tape them together, you have to put the same amount of tape all the way across. Otherwise, <laughs> as they roll, they're going to be a little bit right. thicker in the middle, thicker right. where that tape is, because that's another layer. And as you right. roll, you'll, you have to... and you'll bow your so, bow your film. Yeah. So I think that there are tons of different options for that. And you know, you can probably find a source of opaque paper somewhere. I mean, it's it's right. It's probably out there. We just have to to search it search it out right well uh you know there are a couple of advantages to using 120 backing paper one of them is it has numbers on the back already yeah. so um you know you you could do uh divisible by three you know so you would do one four well i guess it wouldn't be divisible by three whatever it is i'm gonna put you in charge of this crazy roll film thing and i'm gonna stick with plates myself <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Here we it, it, we're we're seeing cracks in the in, in our fine union of uh, of uh, uh, I don't know what to say. Our company, 
Our company is splitting apart right now. <laughs> it's an efficient division of labor. You're okay, the role division. There we go. Right. There we go. Uh, so, I mean, you, you know, there. Uh, I, I think it's something that that would work um, fairly decently well. Um, just just doing yeah. that type of thing. So, and of course, we've already got four by five and eight by ten, and um, you know, a, a, a 20 by 8 banquet camera is just two 8 by 10s stuck together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you could you could work that through. So uh so yeah, I, I think that I think that there's something, you know, that that we can do that is relatively easy. Now, there are also and this is this might not be something that you want to do with your highest grade SLR, but you know, um, with maybe a lower grade SLR, you can just set a set something in there and tape it in, close the back, and go shoot that frame, and then develop that one frame. Um, so I, you know, I mean, there's nothing to say that you can't very easily make a uh, you know existing cameras. With no destruction, no modification, work perfectly for this. I think that there's very little in the way of barrier. No, and in fact, there. Um, I was just listening recently to an interview on. Oh, I'm trying to remember which podcast it was, but Jay Lane, uh, the guy from New Hampshire, who makes in his spare time he makes pre, his own homemade pre-coated black and white glass dry plates. So a dry plate is a glass plate that. Um, is right. dry, which means you can just store it long term and then expose it and develop it like as if it was a piece of film, as opposed to the older tin type stuff that you had to develop while it was still wet. Wet plate um, meant that you you only had a few minutes to take your picture and develop it. That was the classic lenses podcast. Right, 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 and it yeah. was a, it was a great interview and fairly inspiring. And that gentleman had a lot more to say than just the dry plate stuff, but. That part of it really got me excited because uh, he's producing these, you know, at home and selling them, and they're they're beautiful. They're you know they're the thing that ruled photography at the very end of the nineteenth century before gelatin film was was developed, and so it was this the first of the convenient you know save it for later negatives, uh, but at a time when big pieces of glass were still the standard way to make a uh, film media and. They just, I mean, there are amazing photographs made with that process. Right. It's so beautiful. It really is a really, there's nothing, it's inconvenient, it's fragile, it's heavy, but if you can deal with all that, there's no better quality uh, way to, to make a photograph. Right. It's really beautiful. Yeah. special time of the year nick can you tell yeah i mean there's flowers and young birds and all all kinds of good stuff going on yeah that's not what's good about it um (laughs) (laughs) it is ilford's annual ultra large format ordering season 
Um, okay, so what happens is Ilford every year will um, will manufacture film in non-standard sizes, and um, they have it available. You have to order it ahead of time, and they um, you know, and and they'll make it for you. We hope. So um, here's here's some examples. Um, these are some of the sizes that are available in HP5. So you can get two and a quarter by three and a quarter, four and three quarters by six and a half. I don't know what that is. That half a half plate. I don't know what that. No, is. half plate is three and a quarter by four and a quarter. So okay, so I don't know what that is. That's three, a wacky size. Three and a quarter by four and a quarter is also available. Then four by ten, which is half an eight by ten sheet, right? So four by ten and five by twelve, mm. six and a half by eight and a half. I don't know what would shoot that. And then we go into those crazy metric things that for those people who have a logical measuring system, not like our good one. Um, so like eighteen centimeters by twenty four centimeters. Um, then we have like seven inches by 11 inches, eight inches by 16 inches, um, 16 by nine centimeters by 40.6 centimeters. Are there really, are there really cameras made for all these crazy? I, there must be seven inches by 17 inches and then 11 by 14, uh, 14 by 14, eight by 20. That's your banquet camera right there. The eight by twenty. Is there, uh, is there a, like a full portrait, uh, like po- poster size in, in all of this? Uh, what what's the biggest? Sixteen by twenty. Um, okay, seventy millimeter by fifty feet. Okay, okay. So here <laughs> here we're going into the roll film. Um, the largest wow. sheet film uh, is twenty by twenty four. It's a thousand dollars for twenty five sheets. Woo! Wow. Okay. I don't think I'll be shooting. That's a homemade film right there. It's just asking to be made. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I don't even want to pay for the paper at 20 by 24. So, uh, but then, uh, for you 127 folks, you can get 46 millimeters by 50 feet, then 70 millimeters by 50 feet. Um, and what's the difference with between this is 70 millimeters by 50 feet. Something a little bit different. Oh, different. Uh, then there are some different letters, and I don't know what the difference is on some. Maybe, w- maybe with or without perforations. I, I think oh, some of that se- seventy millimeter film was actually it's for like giant cinema cameras and yeah, yeah, yeah. perforations in it. Yeah, right. Okay. So uh, how about this? Twenty inches by fifty feet. Mm. That's only a thou- that's nine hundred ninety six bucks. But that actually sounds very interesting to me. The camera would need an engine and wheels. It would have to be. That's just nuts. Right. Right. Exactly. So anyway, um, if you Google um, Ilford ULF 2019, the way you get this is you go to one of the retailers or aggregators. And the idea is that they um, are trying to aggregate uh, enough u- users to then pay for making this film. 
And so there's, I don't think that there's any guarantees that any of this. Right. So you have, they have to hit a minimum order amount. And if if enough people sign up for an obscure film, then, um, so you might want to get together with other people and, and kind of make a deal. Like let's all order this. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Unperforated. There it is. UP. Um, the, so the 46 millimeter, which is 127, there's also unperforated, um, 70 millimeter. And I think that is for 122 cameras, cameras that take 122 film. Um, and then they also have dual perforations, um, for, you know, the 70 millimeter film. That and that's probably cin- a cin- basically it's like a one twenty cinema film, right? Like the extra millimeters are for yeah. the perforations. That's crazy, right? Right, exactly. So anyway, it's that time of the year. So if you're one of those people, I mean, and seriously, you guys make cameras that are that are not non standard cameras, where they're homemade cameras, right? So um, you might want to look at this and go. Hey, I like that five by twelve size. I should get twenty five sheets, um, and make a camera around the film size. So, mm-hmm. and I, I bet a five by twelve would probably be most uh, lenses designed for eight by ten would have no trouble covering that. So you know, it's it's right. not that far fetched. Yeah, right. So this year it's open April eighteenth. Through May 24th, we're already at the end of April right now. By the time you hear this, it'll be May 7th. Um, so you only have a couple of weeks to get that in. So uh, do that search. And um, yeah, uh, it was, you know, and they make uh, and not necessarily in all the same sizes. Uh, Delta 100, FP4, HP5, and then Ortho. Um so, uh, and hey, that's interesting. They have backing paper, 120 backing paper. There you so go. So it is, let me see. Uh, this is part of it. 120 format size coming in 100 foot lengths. So that's interesting. So you could actually make, you could make a bulk, like a, you know, a massive bulk. Load, loader and shoot a hundred feet of one twenty film. <laughs> <laughs> you could no, absolutely. That would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'm also thinking that <laughs> these giant sizes. There's a lot of different ways to use them. It doesn't just have to be a camera that takes huge pictures. Uh, you could make cameras that that took you know that had like multiple lenses, like a fly eye that you know that exposed absolutely different parts of the same negative and. And also, maybe the film might be expensive for a big size, but you could build a really cheap camera to help balance your costs. You yeah. Know, some, of, some of this could be for an amazing pinhole, for instance, amazing pinhole cameras, where like a big, long, panoramic-sized piece of film kind of wrapped around a, you know, a curved film holder and, and just shoot it with a pinhole. It yeah. would be amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm completely with you on that. So, so Nick, what have you been doing this week? Ah, mostly working. The only I haven't been doing a whole lot. Um, I did I did get out and shoot in the beautiful spring weather. Um, I just like ran away into the woods and took took some photographs. And I got some a bunch of film developed. And I 
I looked at it, uh, it looked really great, and then I started experimenting with a new piece of software that I have not mastered yet to try and uh, invert color images. And it's more convenient. It's something called Negative Lab Pro. It's a plugin that works directly in Lightroom. And that's great because now I can do, even when I take, you know, multiple shots of a negative and then I can process the entire thing in Lightroom, which is new. And that's great. But I'm struggling to learn a new system. And so I I haven't been super happy yet with my results. I need to work with it some more. Yeah. Uh, but it looks really promising. It looks like a way to simplify the software part of all this, which is still something I'm I'm kind of tired of. I, I really just want to take the pictures and then end up. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time at the computer. It, it's not sure. that I don't like the power of it. I, I think it's wonderful. I just I just don't want it to be so involved. And so I'm working on trying to simplify that part of the process. Oh, well, I should say what I did this week, shouldn't I? Um, I shot a um, I shot a roll using that brand new lens that I have that uh, 18 millimeter brand new to me, not brand new at all. Um, uh, that 18 millimeter, uh, lens on my 35 millimeter SLR. Those super wide lenses are demanding. They, they are not easy to work with. Yeah. Well, I've been, ex uh, yeah, I've been trying to figure out how to make it, how to make it, um, work for what it is. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, how to really, um, uh, really use it to its best advantage. So, um, I'm, uh, yeah, so I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying that. Sunday was worldwide pinhole day. And, uh, I shot, uh, several pinhole cameras this week. Unfortunately, I did not shoot them on Sunday, but I was out and about on Saturday. So I just did it on Saturday instead of on Sunday. Um, and I know that makes me a cheater, right? Uh, but That's I, okay. I was out and about. So I was shooting, uh. Um, I think pinhole cam cameras are by definition cheating. I mean, yeah. it's just, yeah. It's... Yeah, they're cheating because they're cool. How are they cheating? <laughs> how is it, how well, is a pinhole camera? Come on, camera you just take cheating? a box and you poke a hole in it? I mean, come on. That's too easy. It is, yeah. Okay. If it were just that easy, <laughs> sure. That would be fine. It's a little bit less easy than that. So it's a little bit more. Um, so I shot, um, my, uh, 24 squared. I shot the, um, butter grip, uh, pin. What is it? Um, X pin. Uh, and I shot my, um, I found and, uh, posted in our, uh, Facebook group. Um, Mike Gutterman, uh, posted in his Facebook group, but of course I wasn't looking, so I missed it and just heard about it later, uh, that he stumbled across on Amazon some Holga, um, panoramic wide. What is it? Uh, yeah, WPC. the Holga wide. Yeah, right. the Holga wide, which uh, takes either a six by nine or a six by 12, uh, pinhole image and, so, uh, I was, I felt really bad that I was, you know, that I missed it. And then a couple of days later, oh, they're back in stock. Uh, so I ordered one and, uh, I think I may modify it and put a lens on the front of it. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, uh, it's a transport system, right? Uh, uh in, sure. in the body. So, so anyway, I shot that as a pinhole camera. 
uh, over the weekend. So I did a lot of pinholing. Um, and I am also, uh, I have a deal where I find cameras that are as cheap as possible to give to students. Um, when students express an interest in film photography, I have three or four cameras on hand and I usually let them borrow them. And if they want to buy them, they can buy them for me. And my rule of thumb is 30 bucks. Um, so I found online a Vivitar, uh, 4000 and that Vivitar 4000 is, a, is essentially a Cosina built camera. And I think it's a sister to the Nikon FM 10. So mm, it's just pretty nice then. It's yeah. just a match LED, uh, electronic, uh, system. And, uh, and it was super clean and, uh, $19 and $9 shipping. So nice. that came in under the $30. I could use it. I could use that for my cheap shots challenge camera, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to because I, I have a, uh, scamera for that. But anyway, so that's what I've been doing. That's what I've been doing. So. Do you have a book for us? Well, I have a huge stack of books, and I might have mentioned some of them earlier. But since we're talking about alternative process, um, I don't know for some reason that a lot of the books on that topic have shown up in the local half-price bookstore as used books. And I know I know I've mentioned some of these before, but there's a huge range. There's books that list alternative processes that have been published over the last I don't know thirty or forty years. Um, one book that I mentioned earlier. Uh, that is particularly useful is the Ansel Adams guide to basic techniques of photography. And it's volume two that covers a lot of alternative processes. And that's actually not a book by Ansel Adams, but it's a book based on his work. Um, that's the starting point and a bunch of different people contributed to it. It was published by little Brown. Okay. Uh, that's, that's a good source. Um, but if yeah, it's worth looking back in time, you know, spend some time on, uh, searching for old books because there's a lot of stuff printed in from before digital took over that is really useful and there's some kind of obscure processes that you could find out about and then i thought i'd throw out something we haven't talked about but there's a whole other uh craft which is photo tinting where you take a straightforward black and white it has to be a silver gelatin black and white or similar uh print and then there are these uh, this kind of special oil paints that are a glaze type of paint that just makes a thin colored layer that lets you still see through to the photograph underneath. And they were originally used for sort of retouching, but a lot of people, before color processes were developed, it was a way to, to make a color photograph by just painting on a black and white photograph. And it's a, it's, it can be a really kind of a cool medium in itself that you just have to take a black and white photograph and color it in. But it's also a way to to just kind of fix things that didn't quite come out right. And a lot of these alternative processes, especially with color, can be really hard to control. And this is a way that you can then come in and kind of just in an old-fashioned analog way get the color better. You know, put a little glaze of green over to bring it where you want it kind of direct work. So it's worth looking into photo tinting. And there's lots of books on that uh, out there, things like hand coloring photographs by james a mcinnis or photo tinting by ed krebs and william f powell uh, so there's a lot of books on that and the, the basic paint systems are all still available you can get a kit of these paints you know from a place like freestyle mm-hmm. um 
and just go to work. Uh, and, and they come as pencils or they come as like... Or as tubes of oil paint. Yeah, right. Yeah, you can work with either kind of starting point. Um, but I think they're really worth looking at uh, both as a process in themselves and as a way to combine... Because if you if you try and get color perfect and entirely in a in a color uh, chemistry, you know, by following a process, you're you're going to have a lot of you're going to not quite get there a lot of the time. So having a way to kind of finish the job directly, I think, is really worth looking into. Right, right, uh, yeah. So um, speaking of printing, how about that for a um, for for a segue? Um, mm -hmm. we have, um, we're still in the process of accepting, uh, contributions or submissions for the first homemade camera zine. And it's a fundraiser that we are going to do. And, uh, the idea is we want a picture of, or three or four pictures of your camera and a picture from your camera, from your homemade camera. And we're going to put those together in a zine and there are a bunch of different categories. Um, and the, we're going to have it open through the end of June with the idea that we will, um, then at the beginning of August have that available and it'll be available as a digital, uh, download for a couple bucks. And the idea is, uh, you know, as a fundraiser. So, uh, if you are interested, go to homemadecamera.com and, uh, just scroll to the menu and the menu, uh, one of the options is submissions for the zine. So, um, please, please, we want to see your cameras. If that's actually, I want to see your camera more than make a zine. Um, but, uh, I do also want to make a zine for, for, for that matter. So, um, so yeah. Yeah, it's a great idea. Um, I'm, I'm hoping lots of people will contribute, and we should probably pester people. Um, and th and that brings me. So you've already mentioned that you know people should go find the form and fill it in and, and send in their pictures. Uh, and I wanted to give a shout out to somebody. We have our this new Facebook group uh, for the Homemade Camera Podcast, and people are starting to join and contribute images. And a recent con contributor is uh, Matt Beckberger. And he put up a picture of a four by five camera that he made that is really like very DIY. Like there are, there's a uh, ready-made lens with a shutter and there's looks like maybe an old focusing rail, but most of this looks pretty much handmade and mm -hmm. uh, it looks like a great camera. It's inspiring in, in, in many ways. I think the super compact wide angle, uh, camera with some movements is an unusual thing you really don't there aren't too many out there it's mm -hmm. something you pretty much have to make for yourself and this is a great example of doing it without without too many off-the-shelf parts i think it's worth looking at right right cool um i have a couple of shout outs um one of them is to the real napjack and he is jack johnson and he is up in uh anchorage I mentioned him the last time. I sent him a, an insert for a metal developing tank, um, you know, just standard metal developing tank. And it's an insert for two and a quarter by three and a quarter 
film and I designed it when I was designing a two and a quarter by three and a quarter camera that I never shot with. So the, 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 the design wasn't good. So, um, so I sent it up to him and he tested it out and apparently it works great. So I'm very excited about that. So also if you want one, you can send me an email, Graham at homemade camera, and I have an insert for two and a quarter by three and a quarter film development. Uh, I have three of them and uh, just, uh, uh, all I want is six bucks from, for mailing to the United States or, yeah, I think it's like 26 to, uh, Europe, the UK. Uh, yipes. I don't know what it would cost, <clears throat> cost to get it to Australia, but I mean, you just, uh, all I'm asking is covering the, the, uh, the postage and I'll send you one. So, um, so yeah. Uh, I also want to shout out to Dale Willits, who is delusion of competence on Instagram and he modified a Holga to be a slit exposure camera. So the deal is if you've never shot a Holga, it has a, uh, in a, a film advance that clicks. So every time you advance it, it clicks and that stops you from rolling backwards. Um, but every one of those clicks advances that film a very specific amount. So if you cut a slit in and you cover up the rest of the, uh, of the film gate and you make essentially a, a drop in film gate that is the same width as that click, then you can make photos from just these little slit sections. So what I'm going to, what I'm, you know, uh, I don't think I've done a really good job of describing them. So I'm going to send you to delusions of competence on uh, Instagram and uh, look him up or just, I don't know if you can get to his name, Dale Willits, uh, but it's, it's very cool. Um, and um, that is, um, uh, uh, it, it has inspired me. I want to, I want to make one as well. Um, so uh, just, just wanted to shout out for that. I also have a movie that I want to talk about. Um, the movie is the B side and it's, um, if you search it on, um, Netflix, you'll find it and it's B hyphen side. And it's about Elsa Dorfman. And she is a woman who for 20 or 30 years ran one of the 20 by 24 Polaroid land cameras. And, uh, I'm not all the way through that movie. I want to go back and, um, uh, but it, I was very excited to find it. I thought it was, um, uh, I thought it was an, an excellent, um, uh, excellent movie to find. Before we leave you for this episode, I just want to say that we have some bad news. And if you're somebody who has been listening to a lot of different film photography podcasts, you'll probably know about this already. Uh, but Carl Havens, who was one of the hosts of the Classic Lenses podcast, 
died this past Friday. And we're recording on, on a Monday. Uh, we're recording on Monday the 29th. And he, he died this past Friday. Apparently, he had had some uh, heart complications or, or heart illness. And uh, it was something that was known. And he, you know, I didn't know him personally. Um, in fact, actually, I just I just live the next town over uh, from him. But uh, I did not know him personally. Uh, I did know him as the host of the Classic Lenses podcast. But we really have a pretty small community. And it's a pretty tight-knit community. And it's a pretty good community. And so I just wanted to pass on um, that it's never to hear. It's never good to hear that one of the members of our community is no longer with us. So, um, yeah, it brings home to me that the, this kind of po- podcast game we're playing is more significant than I realized because, it, it, you know, I'm really moved by this. It, it's upsetting. And it's just somebody that I listen to when I'm working who's talking about something I care about. But it's not it doesn't just end with the the fact that we're passing information back and forth. I, I feel like we're really starting to get to know each other pretty well by, uh, by having this community of, of people who discuss it, you know, a bunch of different angles on this, on a shared obsession, but there's a lot more to it than the, than the technical part. There's getting to know other people in different places and feeling close to them. And I think it's kind of the best thing about the internet, which maybe helps counteract all the evil that that the internet is doing and i don't know that was really brought home to me by this event and i think it's uh it's interesting how many people are really moved exactly so um on that note uh we will be back in two weeks and uh we want to thank robbie yeah robbie cribs uh composed and created the music that we use throughout our podcast and thanks so much for doing that Robbie mm-hmm.